0: Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading is found in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The New Testament reading is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 2 through 18. and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. And Merry Christmas to you. Um, the, uh, this time of year is uh, always... Such an interesting time of year, isn't it? With all the decorations and the lights going up and all the talk of uh, good tidings and comfort and joy going around. And yet, as we look around the world, uh, we look around our neighborhoods, we look around our dinner table, we also see things are still not quite right. Things are still quite at odds with the message of the gospel of Christ. And what do we do with that? Well, I hope that this morning Isaiah will help us to see that. um, Isaiah is prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel around 740 B.C., and this is 18 years before the Assyrian Empire will come and will destroy the nation. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, he goes into why this is going to take place. All the sin, all the idolatry, the neglect of the Lord, the neglect of his ways, and the embracing of all these uh, foreign uh, practices and systems. And he says that this will be the judgment for them. This will be the judgment for their sins. Assyria will come. And yet there's always this thread happening through those first sections of the book where he's saying, but there is a remnant, there is a portion of my people that I will preserve, that I will save, that I will deliver. They will still be my people. They will still wait on the Redeemer King, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 40, which is our text this morning, is sort of this hinge point And in this hinge point, Isaiah begins to to transfer from the northern kingdom uh, to the southern kingdom of Judah, the other two tribes out of the 12 that were um, doing a little bit better than the northern kingdom, but still were being uh, infiltrated by this idolatry, by this practice. And, And he starts to talk to them about how even they will be eventually taken by the Babylonian empire, some hundred and... 50 years later. And that is where we find our text. Comfort. Comfort. And you might be saying, that's super weird. That's really strange to start a prophecy about exile and destruction with this word comfort. And you'd be right. It is an odd way to start. Unless unless there's more to the word than you and I typically think of, and unless God has decreed this exile for a very specific purpose that connects with that comfort that he's offering. In fact, the meaning behind this one word of comfort, the meaning behind this word word should help us not only unlock the rest of this text, which I hope it will do, and the rest of Isaiah's prophecy, which I think it will do. But maybe, this word, maybe, might give us the solution, the solution, to all of the world's problems forever. This one word, I hope you will see, is extremely important for us this Christmas and for us at all times of year. I've titled this sermon, desires fulfilled comfort for the discomforted and we're going to look at three main points this morning God's comfort is strong God's way is unstoppable God's word is forever again God's comfort is strong God's way is unstoppable and God's word is forever let's pray before we dive in our father in heaven hallowed be your name And may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. We pray that your word, O Lord, would take root in our hearts, in our homes, in our lives, in this city, in this nation, in this world. We pray that your word to Isaiah and through John the baptizer, fulfilled in Jesus, would come and do something miraculous in our hearts today to the glory of your name, to the joy of your people, and to the salvation of the nations. Amen. So one of my favorite comedies of all time um, is uh, has this character in it, who's this really obnoxious character. And he in one of the scenes, continues to use this really big like five-syllable word over and over and over again. He keeps saying, inconceivable. That's inconceivable, and he just says it over and over again. Finally, one of the other characters looks at him and just says, I do not think that word means what you think it means. (laughs) Uh, You're misusing the word. I, I don't think that you grasp that concept, and this morning, The word for comfort in Isaiah 40 is similar, I think, for those of us in the world today. Because the word comfort to us usually brings with it what? What kind of connotations come to your mind? I say comfort and just shout it out. What do you think? Warmth? Mac and cheese? Oh, baby. Alright. Comfort food. Yeah, yeah. That's right. What? Health. That's right. So when we hear the word comfort, we tend to think like comfortable, right? Like at ease. Like um, cozy and warm, I heard somebody say. That's what we tend to think. But If you know anything about how language works, words change over time, do they not? When the English translator, William Tyndale, first penned the words of Isaiah into English, they had never been translated into English before in the 1500s, he picked comfort for its meaning back then. Come and fort. And he chose this word because he believed it most accurately represented the original text. So we're at our first point. God's comfort is strong. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. I'm going to get a little bit technical here for like the next four minutes, and I hope that you'll stick with me because I think it'll be really helpful if you do for how we go further into understanding this prophecy, okay? So let's get technical for a minute. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Most of you know that. Over a period of a 1,000 years or so, between Moses and the Minor Prophets, there's this writing of the Old Testament in Hebrew. However, after the Minor Prophets, between the years 400 and 200 B.C., that is before Christ, 400 and 200, the Jews began speaking Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew anymore. And Alexander the Great, from your history lessons you'll remember, began to Hellenize the whole area. And so everyone began to read and write in Greek. And some Jews even had begun speaking Greek as their first language, especially in and around Egypt, which is where the Greek translation, the Septuagint, has its roots. Why do I bring this up? Well, because it can be very hard for us to discern sometimes what an Old Testament author originally meant by a single word, especially when that word has been translated by somebody else. So modern scholars will often look at both this Greek translation, the Septuagint, and the Hebrew original, the Masoretic text, to discern particularly challenging texts. Now, if you're lucky enough to get a text that is quoted in the New Testament, that helps a ton, right? Because then you get to see how the first Christian's church thought and interpreted and understood that text and how it applies or how it is fulfilled in Jesus and the gospel. Okay, I told you it was technical, all right, you got it with me? But here's the good news is is that we have a text like that this morning. We have a text uh, that is quoted in the New Testament, and we have a text that gives us great light on the gospel and will help us understand this prophecy this morning. So the Hebrew word for comfort is niham. It means to have compassion, to have compassion. And this seems fitting, right, since God is telling Isaiah to comfort or have compassion on the people. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. God telling Isaiah, comfort my people, have compassion on my people. Now go to the Greek translation. The Greek translation, paraklete, is a compound word meaning parallel, Para, alongside of, and kaleo, to call, or to encourage, or to exhort. Coming alongside of somebody and encouraging them, exhorting them, urging them. The semantic range involves all these things. And that'll make more sense when we get to the New Testament in a second. So now look at the English word itself, which was chosen again by William Tyndale. 16th century, this is Middle English that he's speaking and writing in. Webster, uh, Merriam Webster says this about the Middle English word comforten or conforten. It says to strengthen, inspire with courage, exhort, cheer up, encourage, invigorate. It's borrowed from the French word conforter, which is like a really intense fortress, something that cannot be moved or shaken. Strength, strong, invigorating. The use that we have for comfort today, which is, we, we all said it already, something producing physical ease, didn't arise until the mid 17th century, about 100 years after Tyndall first translated the text comfort e, comfort e. So, putting together the Hebrew meaning, the Greek translation, the English translation, we have this defini- definition for comfort that goes something like this. If you're taking notes, this is the the big idea that I want uh, want you to write down. God's comfort is a strong and compassionate cry to leave the discomfort of our sin, to trust in his salvation, and to offer that compassionate message to others. Let me say that again. God's comfort is a strong and compassionate cry to leave the discomfort of our sin, trust in His salvation, and offer that same compassionate gospel message to others. To take this one step further, in John's gospel in the New Testament, He gives the Holy Spirit Himself, one of the members of the Trinity, a similar title to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40. He calls him the Paraclete, the Comforter. Same root as this comfort, comfort my people. That these prophets were told to be compassionate and strong in expressing the salvation that was coming to them in a Messiah was only possible because it was going to be God's own Holy Spirit compassionately and strongly crying out for faith and trust in God's Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. One scholar put it this way, the traditional rendering of comforter is especially misleading because it suggests only a very limited aspect of what the Holy Spirit does. He's talking about the modern use of the word comfort. It's kind of misleading for us because we don't typically think of it um, in a more robust way. They go on. A term such as helper, highly generic and can be particularly useful in some languages. In some instances, for example, the concept of a helper is expressed idiomatically as like the one who mothers us or in one language in Central Africa, the one who falls down beside us. Remember Para Kaleof, coming alongside, calling out crying out, encouraging, to fall down beside somebody. That is to say, an individual who upon finding a person collapsed on the road, let's say, kneels down beside the victim, cares for their needs, and carries them to safety. That sounds familiar. I think this is incredibly helpful in understanding what God is wanting Isaiah to even speak to us Today, compassionately cry out to them, encourage them, care about them, care for them and their needs. Carry them to safety. Verse 2 of Isaiah 40 then goes on to say, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Literally, speak tenderly is speak to her heart. Speak right to her heart. Come alongside and cry to her. That's the same word for comfort, perakalese. A third time he wants us to hear comfort or cry or encourage that the warfare is ended. Warfare with Who? Enemy nations? No, they're not going to be free again. Warfare with who then? Warfare with the one alone who can pardon their sins. God himself. Their warfare with God is over. Didn't you notice he says to them, my people... Some of you, this remnant, are still my people. They have received double for all their sins. Now this could mean double, like the Lord punished them more than he needed to. Or it could mean doubled over, as in met perfectly, like a mirror image. You've taken the sin and the judgment has been folded on top of that, doubled over, Perfectly atoned for. Which makes sense, doesn't it? When we come to Jesus, who pays for his people's sins fully, he meets us in our needs, in our brokenness, and our sinfulness fully. It's an encouragement to have your sins dealt with have your greatest need met, to be saved from sin and death and ultimately God who is at war with both sin and death. God's comfort is a strong and compassionate cry to leave the discomfort of our sin, trust in his salvation, and offer that compassionate message to others. It doesn't mean comfortable and it doesn't mean easy street. I want to highlight this even more for a second. If you look one verse earlier before our text in Isaiah 39 8, it says that when the future king of Judah, Hezekiah, will be told that his entire country, the whole southern kingdom, was going to be destroyed and his kinsmen carried off as slaves to the Babylonians, he responds this way. Listen to this. One verse before we get comfort ye, comfort ye, we get Hezekiah saying this. It's mind blowing. Verse 8, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. He's just been told that the judgment's coming a generation after him. And his response is, well, at least it's not me. Everyone he loves, everything he knows is going to be ravaged, enslaved, and he doesn't repent, he doesn't lament, he doesn't beg God for mercy, he doesn't throw on sack and ashes and doesn't say, have mercy on me, God, he says, Whew. I'm glad it's not me. And this is the context from which God says to Isaiah, you're going to have to cry out to my people, encourage them, comfort them with a message of hope. Because even her own leaders, her own kings, are just concerned with their own comfortable, easy lives. That's all they're worried about. Okay, you still may be wondering, is there anything deeper happening here, though, like in the hearts of God's chosen people. Because we love this, I mean, comfort and ease and um, warmth. Like those are not like terrible things. So like where is the, what's happening deeper behind this message, behind this word? Is there anything supernatural happening? And I think that it is more than just this cold sort of emotionless, go and say these things, tell them about their sin, tell them about the hope, and, and then no care, no feeling about it. One of the ways the text that has been helpful in me understanding this is Philippians 2. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 strings several words together, one of which is Isaiah's word for comfort, the paraklese. So let me read this for you in verse 1 of Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement, that is our same word for comfort ye, comfort ye. If there's any encouragement, paraklese, in Christ, any comfort, paramithion, from love, any participation, koinonia, in the spirit, any affection, splagna, this gut reaction, any affection, any sympathy, pity, or compassion. And then he goes on. He's saying, if Christ has done, if what Christ has done and who Christ is as the one who came not to be served but to serve, to give his life away as a ransom for many, if that has had any deep emotional, psychological effect on you, if it has hit you in the gut and you feel the weight of this supernatural, paramytheon, alongside of a myth, or a supernatural power, if this supernatural work has taken place, then you have the Holy Spirit of Jesus in you, working to bring you out of your warfare into peace and right standing and even an inheritance with the Almighty God. Of course, this compassionate, encouraging gospel cry affects our emotions and affects our deepest desires. Of course. It's just not the only thing. It's not even the main thing that God is wanting Isaiah and us to hear today. Although it is a part of this comfort. His comfort is strong and compassionate. It's calling us to safety from sin. It echoes in our hearts and minds Each Sunday during worship and every time you meditate on scripture throughout the week, every time you pray, this comfort begins to shape every aspect of our life and transform us into this compassionate witness and caregiving to a dark and desperate world. God's comfort is strong because, second point, His way is unstoppable Isaiah 43 through 5, we read it twice. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley lifted up, every mountain made low, even the ground, uneven ground shall become level, rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is told that this prophetic voice will appear whose message will prepare the way For the Lord. How? By testifying. By testifying to God's plan to build this highway, this way, through the chaos of the wilderness, through the chaos and the uneven plains of our sin and our idolatry. Valleys lifted up, mountains made low, level grounds, rough places smooth, all language saying there is nothing, there is nothing that will stop this road, this way from being built. And on it, the glory of God, his deliverance, his salvation, his glory will come and be seen by the whole world. And this is where our New Testament reading comes in today. For Luke and his gospel, which we had read, shows that John the baptizer is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and even carrying out his mission in preparation for Christ. Let's look at it again quickly. Luke 3, verses 3 through 9, he goes, uh, John the baptizer goes into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God He, that is John, says, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Wait, what? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, Isaiah did. You did. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore, uh, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is happening here? How is this guy the fulfillment of comfort ye, comfort ye my people? Well, remember, comfort is not comfortable and being saved Out from the discomfort of our sin is what it's about. Being saved out from discomfort. You have to be discomforted, in other words, before you can be comforted. All sin is to be judged. So, in other words, before we can be comforted, we have to be discomforted. Before we can be encouraged by heaven, we have to be discouraged by hell. And that's why John the baptizer has some very strong language. We sang it in the song Jesus I Come, right? To, uh, to break us, to, to snap us, to, to break the bone so that it might actually re-heal properly, fully. So then three groups come up to John the baptizer and they ask him what they should do. How do we get God's salvation, Right? And we pick up in verse 10. The crowds, first the crowds come and ask him, what then shall we do? And he answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Group number two, tax collectors come to baptizer, come to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, "What uh, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false ac- accusation and be content with your... Wages. He tells the people, if they want to be saved, they need to stop seeking their own kingdom, their own comfort, their own idols, and start, start seeking God. Start seeking to comfort others as God has comforted them. John knows why Israel lost the temple. You see, he knows why the nation was sent into exile and why the Babylonians took them over because of their idolatry. Now, if you've been with us at any point during this year when we've been going through our series on Hosea, you'll know that the New Testament defines idolatry for us. In Colossians 3.5, amongst other texts, it says to put to death this whole list, and then it ends with this, covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness. What is covetousness? More. More. More of what? Anything, just more. Discontent, I need more. John says, if you have one more tunic than you need, or one more stock than you need, or one more of anything that you need, whatever it is, it can be shared, it can go. Idols gotta go. Compassion, care for others has to come into your heart and life. But how is that going to happen, you might ask? How will you get a heart that is willing to part with your worldly comforts, that you would experience the comfort of God? and then seek to comfort others. John tells us in verse 15, he goes on, As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. There's our word again, parakleon, exhortations. With many other exhortations or comforts, this is John's idea of comforting. This is John's idea of fulfilling the message of Isaiah to strongly and compassionately cry out to the people to come to leave their sin and to trust in God's salvation, offering it to the world. He's using strong language, right, to convey the seriousness of their sin and their situation apart from the rescue of the coming king. And then he gives this picture of Jesus with this winnowing fork, which is judgment imagery, basically separating all those who are comforted by the gospel and all those who are comfortable without it. It's a key part of the gospel. Before anyone can be found, they have to realize first, I'm lost. Before anyone can be comforted, they have to feel the discomfort of their own sinful disposition first. If you don't feel the least bit discomforted by the image of Jesus Christ the almighty son and living God with a big old fork in his hand and a fire by his side where sin is going to burn. Something is wrong. If you feel discomforted by that, that's a good thing. It's really, really discomforting. If you don't, that's a problem because it's serious. Your sin is serious. The exhortation, the cry from Scripture is to get away. Get away from sin. Get away from death. Run to Jesus. Confess it. Get it out in the open. Then repent of it. Leave behind the stuff you shouldn't have done. Take up the stuff you should have done and weren't. We confess that often, right? Forgive me for the things I have done and the things I have left undone. And this is not a one-time event, by the way. Martin Luther, when he posted the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door in the early 1500s, which sparked the Protestant uh, Reformation, the very first one of the 95 Theses says, when the Lord Jesus Christ said to repent, he meant for a lifetime of repentance. A lifetime of making what's wrong right by trusting in Jesus and by reconciling with God and by reconciling with mankind. So it really doesn't matter whether you're a brand new Christian or you're not a Christian at all or if you've been a Christian for decades. If you got sin, it's got to get dealt with. Expose it, drag it into the light, only in the light can you be healed. That's what John the baptizer is saying. He's saying, don't pretend like nothing's wrong. If something's wrong, then make it right. If your neighbor needs something, don't pretend like you don't have more than you need. Just give it to him. Take care of those the way you've taken, been taken care of by God in Jesus if you've been lulled into the laziness of your own comfort, at the expense of your neighbors, like Hezekiah, John the Baptizer wants you to hear, get up, it's okay, Christ has come, confess, trust, have it dealt with, and go and make it right. In other words, act this Christmas season, act like Jesus really is sufficient, act like he really is the savior of the world in every sphere of your life. But how, you ask, how will I ever get the strength to do that? How can I, you might just say, like I love my stuff too much, my kids all the time, much more vocal than their mom and I. We like to keep it a little bit more quiet, but they just say it out and like, that's my thing. (laughs) Don't touch my thing. Or my little uh, 18 month old. She only has like four words, but like the one she uses all the time is me. Me! And that means mine, or don't touch me, or give that thing to me, or it's mostly involving like her little kingdom. Me! So, how are we gonna get saved? How are you gonna get saved from this pattern? It's by Jesus. It's by Jesus. And it's by Jesus. Here in his people, by his spirit. His payment, his life is the payment. For our sin. His Spirit is the power to change us into what C.S. Lewis called little Christs, or many comforters who care for the world. But you got to know that you need it, right? Blessed are those who what? Mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, they shall receive it in receiving Jesus. I have a friend who had a rude awakening um, when uh, after years of sort of leaning uh, more theologically towards a universalist position, that is that everyone in the whole world gets saved regardless of their faith or religion um, or lack of either. They had a rude awakening when somebody they loved very deeply sinned against them very badly. And they told me through tears how they longed to reconcile with this person who had hurt them, who had sinned against them. But how impossible it would ever be until that person recognized how deeply they had hurt the other person. It's impossible to forgive somebody, to reconcile with somebody who has no clue that they've sinned against you or hurt you. It's, it's, it's not like a, oh, it's hard. No, it's impossible. You're here and you're missing each other. Same is true for God's comfort. It is impossible to comfort somebody who's already comfortable. It's impossible to Free somebody from sin when they say, I'm not trapped. This is me. This is my life. This is who I am. I like it. I'm comfortable. God longs for the world to be comforted by Christ. But if the person is ignorantly comfortable in their sin, they cannot receive that comfort. They can't receive his love The application for this, before we move to our last point, is get Jesus in your life this season, today. Get Jesus and give Jesus. Get Jesus and give Jesus. Get him into your heart by faith. Ask for him to come and save you, set you free, end your warfare with God, and then give him away to others who are in need. Um, and this could be anything. You could be as creative as you like, but there's a lot of needs in this city, a lot of needs in this world right now. I beg you, ask the Lord, how can I give Jesus away? In what small or great way, a little or a lot of sacrifice, whatever it is, but I want to give Jesus away and his salvation. Last point. God's word is forever. Our passage in Isaiah wraps up with this second voice coming. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Bible has a really odd way of inspiring people. For example, if you want to get right, we've already said, you have to admit you're wrong. If you want to be comforted, you have to mourn your sin. And if you want to have a full life, He says, think about death. Think about your own death. All flesh is grass. It fades. It dies. Moses once asked the Lord to teach him to number his days. That is, to calculate roughly about how much time he's got on earth so that he would be wise in spending his life to the glory of God on what really matters The New Testament says, redeem the time for the days are evil. That is, use your life well each day as if it were your last. Because only one thing remains forever, and that is his word, his promises, his kingdom promised to his people. And this is really important for Israel to hear after they they will be conquered by Assyria. It's really important for Judah to hear when they will be exiled to Babylon. All flesh is grass, it fades, but this word of God is strong, it is compassionate, it is true, and it will last forever. So when this word that lasts forever decided to put on flesh... In the baby, in a manger in Bethlehem. That changed a lot of people's lives. Because now, the one who remains forever, Jesus Christ, his presence, the presence of God, is a person. And that person will remain in and beside his people. Forever, forever. Oftentimes you'll hear a story about a person having a near death experience. And what happens when somebody has a near death experience? Light bulb goes off, it's like this aha moment. Whew. I could get my life straight, right? It just, it's miraculous, it happens all over the world. It's not an American thing. People have a near-death experience and it's like, whoa, wake up call. I gotta I gotta make every moment count. Because realizing how short life is, how brief it is, is a gift. And it's the same in the Christian life. All flesh is grass, it fades. But we can trust in God's word and we can live for him each day at a time. The writer to the book uh, of the book of Hebrews in chapter 3 quotes Psalm 95, emphasizing today, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So if you're listening online or if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let's say, we're so glad that you're here, we're so glad that you're listening. The invitation to you is to not put off surrendering your life to God any longer. Let this sermon today be your near-death experience. The wake-up call. Let the image of Jesus with a fork in his hand and a fire by his side be your wake-up call. Whoa, life is short. There is a judge. I need to get right. All flesh fades. Turn to Jesus, the one who died the one who paid fully for your sins to free you. That offer is on the table today. You can email us, you can come and talk to us after the service, but do it today. How do I get right with God? If you're here and you are a Christian, if you're listening online, you are a Christian, I want us to consider our own mortality. Consider the brevity of this life and the assurance, the forever nature of God's word and his promise in Christ Jesus, his life-giving Messiah. And live today as if it were your last. I'd like to end with a passage that we mentioned earlier from Philippians chapter 2. Let's end with this as we reflect on this strong and compassionate cry that comes to us that we would have salvation and offer it to others. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, Or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.